Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is with Ajay Agrawal, the co-founder of United Lex, one of the earliest global alternative legal services providers. He's now the CEO of Sirion Labs, a high-tech contract management tool aimed at large companies. This episode is long. It's long because when I tried to find less valuable content to cut, I completely failed. This is because Ajay is a fascinating, articulate business leader with unique perspectives on the legal industry. He got his start practicing law at Simpson Thatcher in New York and later was a part of Jones Day's expansion to India in the 1990s and early 2000s. There in India, he got a ringside view of a major global trend, outsourcing. In this case, outsourcing medium to high sophistication legal work to Indian attorneys. In this episode, Ajay does a great job of explaining complex business pain points and solutions. Additionally, his retelling of specific moments in his entrepreneurial journey showcases critical moments where his ability to listen to clients, ask the right questions, and then hustle gave rise to high-impact opportunities for Ajay and his company. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the episode. Ajay, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you very much, Anand. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, I am too, Ajay. And, and one big reason for that is because you've done some very interesting things in the legal field. I think a lot of our listeners will uh, know your name and know uh, a lot of the work that you've done at United Lex. They're going to know the work that you're currently doing at Sirion Labs. I want to get into a lot of that. And, and I want to start, of course, where I always start. And that is, I'd love for you to introduce yourselves to our listeners. Happy to do that, uh, Anand. Um, I'm a black uh, letter lawyer by training. I was trained at uh, Cambridge University and uh, was um, then practiced on Wall Street right through the 90s with Simpson, Thatcher and Bartlett in their securities group and then went on to become uh, an entrepreneur uh, in the early part of the last uh, decade uh, with my first company, United Lex, which was a managed legal services provider. And uh, after my stake in that company was acquired by three private equity funds in the summer of 2011, I spent a year and a half working at Stanford's Codex or Center for Legal Informatics as an entrepreneur in residence. And out of that work and out of that research was born my second company, Sirion Labs, which is the one that I'm currently uh, running. The devil is always in the detail. And you know, whilst I'm grateful to you for that uh, uh, introduction, I would say we are but the vessels of the clients who we serve and the true vision for the services we provide for the products that we build actually comes from the clients who we serve. So in that respect, I would say both as a lawyer on Wall Street and subsequently as an entrepreneur over the last 16, 17 years, I have been privileged to serve some of the brightest and most visionary clients in Fortune 500 uh, companies and been able to translate or help translate some of their vision 
into these services and the products uh, that our companies have built. And we're happy to delve a little bit deeper into that, Anand, as the conversation uh, goes on. Absolutely. And, and one of the reasons that we have you on uh, this podcast, the Modern Lawyer Podcast, is that this podcast is about rapid change in the legal industry. And certainly you've experienced a lot of that. You've driven a lot of that. You've adapted to a lot of that. How does a Wall Street black letter lawyer, as you said, uh, an attorney at Simpson Thatcher, one of the most prominent uh, firms uh, nationally, but you know, especially in New York and, and on Wall Street, end up uh, founding a managed legal services company? How does that happen? Walk us through it. Yeah, uh, Anand, uh, the, if you recall, the timing was the late 1990s. India was sort of re-entering the global bloodstream with our new economic policy. And the rapid growth in the tiger economies of Asia had just about happened through the mid-90s. As a result, even the most uh, conservative of New York uh, white shoe law firms uh, like Cravath and Sullivan and Simpson were looking eastward. And I think the initial post that they were all establishing was in Hong Kong, and some were going even further east, looking at places like India and Singapore. Uh, I hitched my wagon at that time to Jones Day and was fortunate enough uh, to be posted to India and have a ringside view of the new economic reforms uh, in the Indian economy and also some of the transactions that were then connecting India to the wider economic uh, circulatory system uh, of the world. As part of that uh, ringside view, I was able to see some of the most fascinating changes taking place in the Indian outsourcing industry at that time, which was climbing out of the most basic level of customer care and most uh, low-level BPO activity that they were providing to slightly higher level the BPO and even KPO as the term that was being bandied around knowledge process outsourcing, where higher level business processes were then being outsourced to India, things like insurance back office, legal back office, research and development design. These kinds of processes were making their way to India. And there were many young companies in that space already by 2003, 2004. But the one that anyone would remember from that period was a company called Office Tiger, which was an iconic company uh, of that period, not least uh, because uh, it was founded by two American entrepreneurs living all the way south in Chennai, uh, or what used to be known as uh, Madras. And both these founders, Joe Siegelman and Randy Ortschuler, uh, made a big stir in the market when they sold uh, the erstwhile Office Tiger to R.R. Donnelly for $250 million. Uh, if I remember correctly, that was roughly around, uh, the company was founded uh, in, in 1999, and it was acquired by R.R. Donnelly in about 2003. So it was a very, very fast uh, growth and a very prominent exit, and it inspired a whole range of entrepreneurs in India to leave their well-paid jobs and try their hand at entrepreneurship. This was the iconic exit that spurred a whole wave of entrepreneurship in India. So companies like uh, Pangea 3, which became a part of Thomson Reuters, United Lex, which is the company that I co-founded, so many other companies, Integrion, uh, EvalueServe, they were all inspired in part by the success of uh, Office Tiger. And I think our thought process at that point my initial thought process was to maybe acquire two or three of the 
uh, incipient legal managed service providers in India at that time and combine them into a larger entity to obtain scale uh, as a kind of a mini roll-up. But then when I took look deeper in the existing landscape of providers, I noticed that none of them were really operating like an accenture of the legal space. None of them had crystallized best practices, built-in technology to accompany their services. And most disturbingly, uh, more than 70, 80% of their revenue was a burning platform. It was a project-based revenue stream that was expiring every year and had to be renewed and resold the following year. So as a result, I took a step back and decided to start United Legs with the object of really being building something like the Accenture of the legal space, uh, as something that would bring global best practices to law departments. It would also bring technology. And of course, uh, it would bring the people and a annuity-based legal service uh, at the back. And that was our vision. Uh, and then, of course, the company grew very rapidly from there to more than 100 million during the time that I was uh, with United Lex. Uh, we were very fortunate enough to be invested in by uh, Canaan Partners and then subsequently by uh, Sequoia Capital. And uh, my co-founder, Dan Reed, uh, is still running that company. In roughly about 2009, uh, whilst we were on that journey, one of our largest clients, CSC, was looking to migrate their contract repository from their erstwhile Lotus Notes uh, to a slightly more modern uh, schema. And this was driven in part by their desire to bring their 429 large enterprise clients onto a single uh, repository. And the design that was done with United Lex as the service provider focused largely on the legal attributes, the, you know, the terms and conditions sitting inside those contracts. During a lunch meeting, I remember this so clearly, in February 2009, with their general counsel, Bill Deckelman, who had himself joined the company quite recently from ACS and was reporting to their CEO, Mike Laurie, who had also joined the company quite recently from MISIS. So these were early days. And if you recall, these were right after the financial crisis of 2008. They were taking stock. CSC was in a little bit of a mini crisis at that time. Their revenues had declined from a peak of $17 billion uh, to roughly about 14 or 15 billion at the time we were talking. They had a very healthy chunk coming from the federal sector where they were a dominant provider, but then also about 11 billion coming from uh, these 420 enterprise clients, which they wanted us to focus on. And during that conversation at lunch, the topic turned to Mike Laurie, the CEO's top three priorities for Bill Deckelman, the general counsel, one of which caught my ear. And that was a phrase which Bill described as contract education, which I had never heard before. I asked Bill what it meant, and he said, look, at CSC, we have great salespeople. That's why we win business. These people are empathetic. They listen to the unique requirements of the customer. They design unique bespoke solutions tailored to those requirements. And that's why we are winning so much business. We also have great delivery people, which is why our revenue profile is like Accenture. We have very deep, long-term relationships with our customers, uh, even on the federal side of things. So great salespeople, great delivery people. The problem is that there is, they don't talk to each other. So what we sell is not necessarily what we end up delivering. And in the gap between what was promised and what was delivered, a lot of the problems that we are currently facing 
can be crystallized. So, you know, there are a lot of missed obligations, uh, disputes. There was a litigation going on with Delphi at the time, one of their largest clients, uh, unrealized wallet share, et cetera, et cetera. So what Mike wanted Bill and the leadership team to do was to somehow bridge the gap between sales and customer service delivery. And my response to Bill was, in that case, Bill, why are you focusing on just creating a legalistic version of the uh, contract repository using United Lex resources? Why don't we help you to translate some of the business commitments that you've made inside these contracts and capture those and go one step further and link them to the people inside the delivery organization who are tasked with meeting those commitments to the customer. So that way, you're really bridging the gap between sales and delivery. And Bill's response to that was, that sounds very interesting. I didn't even know that a legal managed service provider could do something like that. And what was meant to be a lunch meeting turned into a week-long meeting. I remember this, staying in Falls Church. uh, Let me ask you this, because based exactly on what what he just said, right? I didn't know a legal managed services provider could even do that, right? I mean, what at that point, right, uh, for United Lex, but also some early competitors, what was the, the, the core thing that legal managed services provided. And then I want to loop back into the story about contract education, which I find fascinating. But at that moment, what did he think United Lex was there to provide based on the context of what other legal managed services could provide and were constrained as to what, what they could provide? Yeah, and um, uh, that takes us back to the world as it was 15 years ago. Broadly speaking, legal managed service providers were providing services in three broad categories. Intellectual property, which was comprised of patents and trademark services. Litigation support, which was predominantly uh, document review, but some LMS providers have also developed onshore e-discovery services, forensic uh, services to accompany their document review. And last but not least, contract management. Now, within contract management, which is where our story is, The services tended to be of two flavors. One was the drafting and negotiation of low to medium complexity contracts, which had high frequency. And in those cases, people were training uh, attorneys at relatively low cost jurisdictions. It could be onshore in places like Richmond or Kansas City, or it could be offshore in places like Israel or South Africa, or even India. Either way, these attorneys were being trained to handle high volume, low complexity contract negotiation and drafting. That was one. And the second, and this was a fascinating thing and going back, goes back to the conversation with Bill, these attorneys were also being used to capture the data that was sitting inside executed contracts. So these were the legacy contracts, the portfolio of legacy contracts that every general counsel had to live with. And if you cast your mind back to that period, that was the initial period of contract repositories getting launched, the early days of P2P. So the world was dominated by Ariba, by mTORIS on the P2P side, and on the CLM side, by softwares like Nextons and Upside, and a lot of them don't even exist today, Selectica. These companies were making their way through corporate uh, general councils. And as they were installing them, 
They needed armies of people to read those contracts, to extract the data from them, the expiry date, the renewal date, the insurance values, and upload them into their CLM or their P2P or their ERP systems. So these were the two services that were being provided, and both were largely legalistic in nature, whether it was drafting or it was capturing metadata. Now, as lawyers also captured that metadata, they also captured the variation from the preferred terms to encapsulate some of the risk inside those legacy contracts, but still largely legalistic. Nobody at that time was putting their hand up and saying, excuse me, buried in the back end of these contracts, in the exhibits, the annexures, and the schedules are also the business end of these uh, contracts. Whereas right. the business end uh, comprised, comprised of the value that we expect to deliver to our clients or that we expect from our suppliers, you know, the obligations, the milestones, the deliverables, the service levels. And that is where Bill's interest was. And I would say Bill was the really the first true visionary. Uh, and, and Mike Laurie, who was at that time the CEO of uh, CSC and now DXE, in fact, just retired from DXE uh, last uh, December, these were the two absolute visionaries uh, in the space. I, I can't remember a conversation with the general counsel anywhere in the world. And we were talking to more than 300 of them uh, back at that time, who was as far thinking as Bell. And even today, 13, 14 years later, when I think back to the simplicity of Bell's vision, you know, using a phrase like contract education, connecting sales and delivery, capturing the concrete commitments and making them available to the customer service organization. They sounded so simple. They were so easy to execute as a result. But even today, 13, 14 years later, I look around and I struggle to see people who have that breadth, breadth and simplicity of vision. And that's what, in my mind, makes Bill so special. And that's what made us so fortunate as a company to have him as a client. And so in that moment, you knew, uh, you, were, you were able to recognize how special that idea of contract education was. You saw, I mean, obviously, coming from the CEO and being top three on the CEO's priority list, filtering down to the GC at, at this you know, massive company, $17, $14 billion uh, company, helps, right? It comes with a lot of credibility. But you were shrewd enough to know at that point that this was a major pain point. You know, I, I interrupted you and kind of took you in a different path, but you were about to talk about a, uh, a lunch meeting, a meeting that was supposed to be a lunch meeting that ended up taking substantially longer that ended up kind of pointing your company in a whole different direction based on, on this concept of contract education. Absolutely, Anand. And, you know, so what, what was meant to be a lunch meeting ended up lasting seven or eight days. Bill had two absolutely brilliant uh, colleagues who were helping him to flesh out and uh, build this vision. One was Nancy Nelson and the other was uh, Richard Sandler. And Richard and Nancy would work with me throughout the day to flesh out what obligations meant, what were the business rules, how to separate the wheat from the shaft, what was a critical versus a non-critical obligation, what were dormant obligations like post-termination obligations triggered uh, after the termination or uh, triggered by an event? You know, what were uh, obligations that should have standalone reminders uh, versus what should go as a clustered report on every Monday? I mean, there was incredible amount of engineering that went in to what was a very simple enabling idea, uh, I would say, from Bill and ultimately from Mike Laurie. And... In the day I would have these sessions, I would go back to my hotel room, I have a quick uh, 
you know, uh, in room service dinner. And then from eight o'clock in the night till six in the morning, I would talk uh, to my team in India, Aditya and Kanti. Aditya was our chief architect. Aditya Gupta was a young engineer, 25 years, all of 25 years old at the time. Kanti was also an engineer from IIT Bombay. And she was the one who was building and designing the product. Aditya was the architect and the chief engineer. And with a massive team of six engineers, this application was built between February and May and went into production shortly thereafter for CSC. And, uh, you know, we called it LexBase. We filed a few patents around it because it was really the first time that anyone had automated. And I'll tell you why I was so excited. I mean, of course, from a revenue perspective, it was almost a $4 million plus dollar contract for a company that was only $7 million in revenues at that time. So you can imagine the impact it had on our top line. Uh, and this was extremely high gross margin revenue because it was product driven. But I think far more than that, what excited me about this journey was that we were beginning to see the first contract management technology that could potentially connect to the bottom line of a company. I think the biggest problem in the growth of CLM uh, industry, if you cast your mind back, Anand, in 2002, Andrew Bartels authored a paper uh, for Forrester in which he predicted that the CLM industry would cross $5 billion in revenue in five years. That year was 2002. Now we are sitting in 2020, and CLM is yet to cross. In fact, I think it's just crossed $1 billion in annual revenue. So it's taken 18 years to achieve 20% of Andrew's vision. And I think even as early as 2009, it was clear to me that one of the growth inhibitors in CLM realizing its vision in the market was the inability of uh, CLM to connect to the main business transaction systems of the enterprise, the ERP, the P2P, the CRM systems, which is where the true value is being transacted, won or lost. And the CLM system all too often tended to be a walled garden, a vault in the hands of the general counsel, completely disconnected from the rest of the business transaction systems. And what we were building with Bill Deckelman under the guidance of Mike Laurie at that time seemed to be a way to bridge this gap between the legal universe and the rest of the bottom line oriented business universe and to make an impact, a true impact on the bottom line and ultimately even the top line of CSC. That's what made it so exciting for me, apart from, of course, transforming the fortunes of United Lex, my company uh, at the time. And so I take it that LexBase uh, did quite well, right? <laughs> it, did, it did very well. It, you were able to solve the, the problems of one large company. And then from there, take that solution, take that product-based solution and shop it around at, at many other companies? Is that is that a fair uh, statement or a fair encapsulation of the, the journey over the next uh, several months and years? Yeah, I wish that was the case, Anand. Exactly the opposite. <laughs> exactly the opposite. Our success with CSC was never repeated uh, at that scale. It was one of the biggest disappointments uh, in my life, particularly in my journey as a founder. Uh, we had many small little um, uh, echoes of that early success with BT, with Capgemini, uh, and with a few others, but we never, ever got an enterprise-level engagement, and which is why, even 13 years later, I look back with such fondness at uh, Bill Deckelman and at Mike Laurie for having the vision and the fortitude 
uh, to execute that vision to transform the lives of tens of thousands of customer service delivery personnel working those accounts all over the world in one uh, in one shot. And I think looking back, uh, you know, uh, not only do I appreciate their vision and how they carried it out, it also makes me realize that it was maybe destined to fail the way that it was structured. It was a product born in the DNA of a services company. Uh, it was always going to be a stillborn baby, Anand. Uh, and a year and a half, two years later, ultimately, when I decided to hang up my boots at uh, United Lex and move on to Stanford, and I had the ability to reflect on this uh, with some distance between me and the product, also with the help of my colleagues at Stanford, I figured out that we made essentially two very big mistakes that prevented us from taking it and scaling it as a product uh, in 2009. The first was we went after the wrong end of the market. By tackling large suppliers like CSC, by going after them first, we were essentially hoping that these absolutely monstrous big suppliers, EDS, HP, IBM, would somehow listen to a tiny little company and use their advice to alter their multi-billion dollar customer service delivery architectures. And that was always going to be a stretch. What we should have done instead is gone to their tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of corporate customers and said, guys, you've just signed a very big deal with Capgemini, with Accenture, with IBM. Let us help you hold them to account. Let us help you monitor whether they meet their promises or not. So that was one problem uh, that we had gone to the wrong end of the stick to begin with. And I think the second, and this is so true, in software, they used to call this the five-minute rule. I call it the 500-minute rule. What happens 500 minutes before your software gets switched on? And what's happening 500 minutes after your software is stopped, uh, you know, People stop using it. So what are those manual things that come pre and post your software? And when we look to the left and right of obligation management, it turns out that there was a lot of manual activity. There was service level management, invoice preparation, invoice audit, actions, issues, claims, disputes, uh, governance body meetings, uh, managing the contract, extracting the data from the contract. And all of that work was happening manually. Uh, some of it was happening inside the official rubric of account governance. Some of it was buried in, in shadow business uh, units. But either way, this was a manual drag on the business. And by automating one aspect of it, obligation management or deliverable uh, tracking, we definitely moved the ball, but we just didn't move it far enough. So a year and a half later, sitting in Palo Alto, reflecting on this, I really realized that if I was to ever revisit this, it would have to be a much wider product, number one. And number two, at that time, early in 2011, 12, 13, uh, it was a very interesting time architecturally. The conversations around permission ledgers and blockchains were just beginning. The second thing that was just starting to happen was the creation of architecture protocols like REST API and Angular.js, the idea that systems should be architected fundamentally in such a way that they can talk to other systems. It's not about creating walled gardens and shutting out the noise from other systems. It's about seamlessly interoperating with other systems and allowing your clients to really leverage all the investments that they've made historically. So, and that idea, in a sense, became a very, very enabling and empowering idea because we realized the third and probably the most profound insight of all, which drove Sirion, 
is that contract management systems like their P2P and CRMs uh, counterparts were fundamentally back-end systems. They were designed just like P2P systems were back-end procurement systems and CRM systems were back-end sales systems. Contract management were back-end contract creation and storage systems. They were never designed to connect the contracting counterparties. They were never designed to be permissioned ledgers where both parties could share data among each other, with each other after the contract was signed. And as such, they tended to fade into the background after the signature and the post-signature value realization curve tended to be very manual. So sitting in Stanford in those days... I definitely want to get into to, uh, Surion and I want to get into the work that you're, you're doing right now. I, I had a question though, and that relates you know, to you as an entrepreneur. I want to rewind the clock all the way back to your work at Simpson Thatcher, your work at Jones Day. When you were there in those environments... First of all, could you have imagined how far you've come and how how you know far away from being a Wall Street a Wall Street attorney you've come? But you know, in that environment, were you thinking about you know, legal managed services? Were you as a as a, an attorney at Simpson Thatcher, Simpson Thatcher thinking, "Wow, um, there's a better way to do what I'm doing," or "Hey, you know what? Um, I could outsource some of this and make this more profitable for Simpson Thatcher or more." favorable to the client. Um, were you thinking along those lines? Or alternatively, were you just you know, kind of made up of entrepreneurial DNA and you knew you wanted to take the plunge into that? I mean, what was your mentality uh, that long ago? Yeah. I, if I was to say that I was thinking about this as early as Simpson Thatcher days, I think that would be a stretch, Anand. I think I was young. I was just uh, thrilled to be part of an engine that was some of the most creative uh, private equity financing and securitization deals were being designed in the cockpit uh, at Simpson Thatcher. I think it's only a, a few years later when I moved to Asia with Jones Day. That's the time that some of these ideas started coming into my head. A, because I was exposed to the knowledge processing, uh, processing sector um, in India in the early part of that decade, 2000, 2001. And secondly, because as part of Jones Day, we had to develop a securities practice in Asia. And uh, at that time, uh, we had to train a whole bunch of Indian lawyers uh, to work, uh, and just not just Indian, but uh, Asian lawyers to work at the same level of competency as their counterparts in London, in New York, as we were building clients and practices uh, which were truly global in nature. So this notion of trapping best practices, of training people uh, to perform at global levels, that really happened in a microcosmic way in my Jones Day journey uh, to begin with. And I think uh, from there, uh, looking over my shoulder at the success of Office Tiger, I started asking the question, can we do this? Can we attempt this at a much larger scale albeit a little bit lower down in the complexity curve. Yeah, that, that makes a, a, a lot of sense. I'll, I'll make a shout out right now to a documentary that I watched a long time ago about Office Tiger. I think it might be called Office Tiger, but it's it's an excellent documentary that, that really shows how, you know, the cultural divide impacted how these two 
Western entrepreneurs went into India and and set up shop. It's fascinating, and you know the whole the whole notion of outsourcing and and the the cultural issues involving outsourcing um, are, are very very interesting. You know, sometimes comedic as it relates to the Office Tiger documentary. They certainly had a lot of a lot of success. What kind of cultural issues did you um, have to confront, right, as you were trying to get these? you know, South Asian attorneys, East Asian attorneys leveled up to, um, you, you know, the same proficiency as uh, any other Jones Day attorney in, in New York and London. Uh, was it an uphill climb? I mean, what, what were you facing here? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the one thing I will say is that one's success in the present creates uh, a mirage or an illusion of potential success in subsequent endeavors. It emboldens you to try something. <laughs> and it's only when you try it that you discover that the new thing is so different. For example, sitting in New York or London, working with people who were educated at Harvard, at Yale, at Oxford or Cambridge, you feel everybody uh, has the same pedigree, the same quality, uh, and how difficult can it be establishing a legal practice in a place like Bombay or Singapore or Delhi, right? Well, you come here, you discover that it's not that simple because people don't have the same pedigree, they don't have the same instinct, they don't have the same training, and most importantly, the deal flow simply wasn't there. The lawyers in New York and in uh, London to a lesser extent in the late 90s were battled hardened simply because of the sink or swim policies. There was so much work that they got trained very quickly. Their instincts got trained very quickly. That was not the case in Asia. So you had to bring a lot of compressed learning in the form of Bibles and checklists and use that to imbibe uh, the learning instead of uh, live deal scenarios. The second thing was at a large law firm, you were still able to throw big money. I mean, I remember Jones Day was quite simply the highest paymaster in India. Our salaries uh, sitting in Delhi and in Bombay were four times, five times higher than the salaries being paid out by even the number one law firm in India uh, at the time. So we were able to essentially buy the best talent that was on offer in India at that time. And that, again, created the illusion for me that I could attempt to do this at scale, albeit lower down the complexity curve when I started United Lex. Well, what you find is that illusion evaporates very quickly. 1%, the top 1% of Indian legal talent is extremely articulate, globally competitive, and incredibly bright, okay? But then you fall off that cliff. And the remaining 98%, uh, coming from a variety of different colleges spread through the legal spectrum in India is virtually unemployable. There, the way we, we quickly realized that hiring young attorneys in United Lex uh, without having the ability to give them top dollar essentially meant the training was an unlearning process. We had to take the first six to 12 months to make them forget everything they had learned in law school, to make them forget uh, to make them learn everything about professionalism. So what does it mean to show up on time for a call? What does it mean to play back what the client is asking you, taking, uh, you know, uh, sending the minutes of meeting, following up, all of these things, the basic tenets of professionalism, we had to teach them alongside teaching them the basic tenets of uh, contracting, 
what I learned very quickly uh, in the services business is that you have to be a university first and a business second. And that's what enabled us to succeed there. But Sirion was a completely different story. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, it's fascinating to me, uh, you know, the idea that you would you know, kind of parachute in, start this business that was very, you know, culturally complicated, that was, um, that was still very you know, highly speculative at that time. I mean, to that point, you know, as to, as to getting this thing off the ground, how did, you, uh, how did you actually operationalize this and sell your first deals at United Lex? Uh, in the in the earlyish days, uh, when you when you built up this university and taught the basic professionalism notions, how to how to um, write with the requisite level of formality in an email, how to follow up, all of these basic th- basic things, how did you then bundle all of the all of these you know uh, put in one way human resources and then go to a client and and, and say. Hey, look, we have this package of services that we can provide. It costs X dollars. I mean, what was the process going from this university and this, you know, one year university course that you provided to these attorneys to actually uh, getting a buck, getting paid? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I think um, we were lucky, Anand. We were not the first movers, right? The first movers were Pangea 3. Uh, companies like Intellivate, which had just been acquired by Microsoft in 2005, um, Quizlex, Integrion, these were the first movers. United Lex uh, was the last of the first wave, if I can put it that way. And to that extent, we already had uh, an understanding of the legal topography of the offering uh, landscape uh, being divided between contracts, delegation support, and intellectual property and the subdivisions inside each of those. Uh, I don't think we had to invent that wheel or discover those uh, opportunities on our own. Where I think we struck out slightly differently, and from a client perspective, our first client was Hewlett Packard. So if you remember, those were the Carly Fiorina days, the compact execution. Uh, um, uh, acquisition had just been completed, uh, but the culture between HP, the uh, white shoe, very elite, uh, educated culture versus the very brash sales culture, the Texan culture of Compaq, that divide had not been traversed. And more importantly, the contracts between the two companies were still sitting on completely different siloed databases. And that was our enabling. We had a very progressive sponsor in uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, a chap called Gabriel Gabriel Buigas. And Gabriel, like Bill Deckelman, had the vision to see a future for HP uh, Compact that was very different from their I mean, present uh, at that as you describe it, that seems like a, a monster problem. I mean, you've got this massive acquisition, HP acquiring Compact. And that is, I mean, that was in the early days where, where this gentleman, Gabriel, brought in United Lex to kind of square that. I mean, that, that sounds like, a, 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 you know, starting at, at among the most uh, you know, steep of climbs. That, that, that is impressive. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, and, and I, I think, uh, as I mentioned to you, the one of the biggest problem statements in contract management for legal managed service providers in that time was deploying armies, virtually armies of young lawyers to capture information inside legacy contracts. Now, some of that was just legacy contracts in existing repositories. Some of that 
was in the context of recent acquisitions, like HP and Compact just being a dramatic version of that. And then once you proved uh, that, then I think uh, what HP loved about, uh, you know, even for that very small deal, uh, to start with, we were determined to show HP that our work product would be very different than anything that other LMS providers were providing out of India or South Africa at that time. We said, we're not, we can capture the data from Compact's contracts, we can give it to you on Excel's, but we're not going to do it, Mr. HP. Uh, we're going to take the time. Uh, so October, November, December, and January, October, November, December, 2006, and January, 2007, we spent four months actually building a system, a code, writing the code, so that we could ingest the compact contracts, capture the metadata, and play back the metadata to them on a hosted system rather than giving the work product to them on Excel. We had the pride of worksmanship to do something like that. And I remember when we delivered this work product in January 2007 to them, the HP team, uh, the contract team at HP was led by a visionary lady called Diane Homolak. And I wonder where Diane is these days, uh, but a shout out to Diane wherever you are. Diane was so blown away by this that the conversation rapidly shifted. HP was in a super acquisitive mode in those days. They were acquiring big companies literally every month. And they said, why can't we use this little platform that you've built to rapidly assess potential acquisitions and then rapidly integrate them the moment they're completed. So I remember we did every major acquisition by HP right throughout 2007. And I mean, one of them, Mercury Interactive comes to mind, 19,000 contracts, five different languages. And what fascinating challenges each deal would bring to us, right? In the Mercury Interactive deal with five different languages, we got into conversations with the University of Vienna Professor Werner Vinivater to understand what the state of the art in automatic translation was at that time. This was all before Google Translate and any other kind of commercial translation software, right? And we were using his software JetCat and KitKat to translate these foreign language contracts of Mercury Interactive and rapidly bring them into HP. So, so you know, in a sense, even though we were operating at scale, doing fairly low-level work, extracting data from contracts, putting them into systems, the journey was always technical. And the intention was always to build a platform on which to deliver the services, so make it platform-based delivery, uh, which in a sense became a precursor for the product uh, vision that was ultimately to follow. That's ex extremely fascinating to me. I, I, I finally understand what you mean now in a way when you when you said that you wanted to be the accenture of the legal space, right? Um, not just simply throw armies on something, but create a technical solution, a platform-based solution, a repeatable solution to a problem. Yeah, that sounds that that's fascinating, and and uh, it seems impressive as to what you know the ground you were able to cover. I want to fast forward here to uh, where you you were going next, Ajay, and that is Surion Labs. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you you uh, um, left United Lex. You went over to Stanford Codex, an organization I, I respect, I know very well. In fact, it, you know, some some uh, folks uh, originating from there or learning from there are some of our co-founders at Case Text. Um, and then uh, you went on from from there to uh, your current company, if I have the timeline right. 
what is Surion Labs and what are you what are you uh, trying to do in Surion Labs and what gave you that spark of creativity to to say hey I'm ready let's start a new company and uh, I know what problem I want to solve. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think that for me, uh, coming out of the experience with Bill Deckelman and CSC, I was always fascinated, not so much by the creation of contracts, but about how to keep the uh, promises inside contracts, how to excavate those promises, the archaeological aspect of it, and then how to bring them to life. And to use a somewhat you know macabre analogy, I always thought of contract repositories almost like graveyards where we were burying these contracts. And it always occurred to me that the role of technology, uh, of AI, of ML, is to breathe life into these corpses, into these graves, uh, and somehow bring them to life because of the way that they are currently sitting. And on the one side, uh, we need technology that can just automatically read the information from these contracts. And then on the other side, we need automation, RPA, uh, elastic technology that can connect the uh, information that's been taken out from these contracts to the business transaction systems where the value creation and the value delivery is actually occurring and then enable these contract management systems to connect with the backbone of the uh, enterprise for the you know, P2P, ERP, and the CRM systems. So for me, that was always a fascinating exercise. And for me, as I said, it was about ensuring as you breathe life into these uh, graveyards, uh, into these individual contracts, that you were finding a way to leverage permission ledgers, blockchain, emerging technologies at that time, including REST API architecture, to create live dynamic bridges between the contracting counterparties. It's so a switch to the dial. Without, without the, this kind of modern technology, would Sirion Labs exist? I mean, you, you've mentioned, um, you know, we've, we've jumped around a bit, but you were talking about United Lex uh, and the HP Compact, uh, you know, work in 2007. Obviously, all this discussion of AI ML, certainly of blockchain, uh, wasn't wasn't at, at a kind of fever pitch in 07 uh, or even in the conversation in 07 as it is now. Is part of the work that you're doing uh, driven and enabled by these massive advances in AI ML and certainly for contracts, NLP technology, natural language processing and blockchain? Very much so. I would say there are three dimensions of the problem. You asked us, what does Sirion do? Sirion is simply put, the first truly lifecycle uh, contract management uh, technology in the world. Most contract management technologies focus on authoring and storing contracts. And that leaves people figuring out how to manage the promises inside those contracts by themselves, because that's not a part of contract management software. Sirion is the exact opposite. Sirion starts by focusing on uh, the value realization, keeping the promises inside those contracts. And then we dialed our functional arc back and we uh, you know, uh, also released our contract authoring and repository functionality. So we were in a sense a post-signature contract management company to begin with. And then we became a pre-signature company and we always had auto extraction and ML capabilities in order to extract what were the 
more dense objects inside the contract. And I'll come to that in just a minute. You asked about the role of ML and NLP, and I'll, and I'll just talk about that. So contracts contain fundamentally, I'm oversimplifying, of course, Anand, but contain fundamentally two types of objects. One are the one-dimensional legal metadata objects that have literally one property, right? So let's say, what is the jurisdiction of this contract? Republic of Austria. Then you also have multi-dimensional objects. I like to call them data diamonds. The data diamonds inside contracts are things like obligations, milestones, service levels. And why are they multidimensional? Because for any obligation, it's the description, the frequency, the criticality, the region, the financial impact, the owner, the escalation point. So these are, if you will, like the facets of a diamond. These are the multiple attributes of that data object. And since it's more than one attribute and sub-attribute, that's effectively making it a much more sophisticated object to excavate uh, from that uh, from that graveyard and to ultimately to breathe life into it. But the converse is when you do breathe life into these complex objects, uh, you get immense, immense value. The richness that flows from business objects, you cannot compare it to the one-dimensional metadata. So again, coming back to your point about AI and ML, 90% of the artificial intelligence and NLP technology that's in the market, maybe even 95%, is focused on excavating and extracting simple legal metadata from the contract, governing law, effective date, name of parties, you know, and virtually 98% of the revenue that flows in this industry today, uh, dominated by a clutch of players, uh, is focused on this one-dimensional metadata objects. And I think only now, at, in 2020, are people waking up to the fact that we're spending all this money extracting flat metadata, one-dimensional metadata, but that doesn't really float our boat. That doesn't really translate into an increased probability of value from our contracts. For that, we need the business objects, and the business objects are multidimensional. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's where sitting on. That, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a mind-blowing stuff, right? I, I mean... Do you think that we're focused and the industry is focused on these single dimensional, you know, non-diamond, not multifaceted objects because the industry just doesn't know that, um, and by the industry, I mean the consumer base here, right? Large companies simply don't know that, uh, that we have the technology to do all of this with these multifaceted, uh, you know, diamond uh, uh, portions of contracts, diamond clauses, I forget your term. I mean, it, it, you know, have we is technology moving so fast now that all of a sudden, uh, you know, knowing that it's in the Republic of Austria, knowing that that the jurisdictional tie is is to is to that particular area, that's just the that's just the most boring, blase thing. There is now a huge amount of value you could mine from this contract due to the, these new advances in technology that the market still isn't really up to speed on. Is that am I, am I stating that right? Yeah, so I think some of it is stems, you're right, Anand, some of it stems from uh, just the sheer ignorance of technology and what it can do for you. But I think a larger part, Anand, stems from the fact that even today, the bulk of spending on AI and data extraction is in the hands of law departments and legal departments 
who don't really have a vested stake in extracting the business objects in a contract because it is not them who have to monitor the value realization post-signature. That's left to the business. So if the business stakeholders who are far more concerned with whether the post-signature promises by the supplier are kept or whether the suppliers or the promises to a customer are kept, if they had a say, then obviously I think this part of the contract would be in much greater focus. And, and I think as the gap between the contract management systems and the business transaction systems is starting to close, the business stakeholders who are sitting on the other side of the fence, they are waking up to the fact that they don't have to deploy huge amounts of people to read the contracts and manually create what are called DNO registers, deliverable obligation registers, that this can be done by an act of technology. And that's an incredibly empowering site. I mean, for example, I'll take a simple example. Take the banking sector. In banks in America, they have to respond to regulatory uh, requests for information on almost an ongoing, continuous basis. Regulations like SR 14-1. And in order to respond to any request like that, they have to look across all the sources where their contracts and other business documents are residing, shared drives, destination folders, repositories. The first thing they have to do is pull those documents from wherever they're sitting. Then they have to deduplicate them, thread them into parent-child relationships, then extract the data from them, then analyze that data, find what is responsive to what the Fed is asking for in a SR 14-1 response, and then and only then they can submit that. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you what a mid-sized entity, let's say, for example, State Street Bank, would have to go through to submit a report of this magnitude. I mean, we are literally talking millions of dollars of effort going into a simple regulatory filing like that. And all of a sudden, hey, presto, if somebody told them that there is a crawler algorithm that can go and automatically suck out these business documents and contracts from wherever they're residing today, assemble them in a central place, and then interrogate them and pull out all the values that you need for your SR 14-1 report and can do this in a matter of minutes or even days as opposed to weeks and months. I mean, that is truly mind-blowing. And that conversation, Anand, that's just started now. Yeah, that's amazing. That 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 is. I, I don't think mind blowing is an overstatement. I want to read you uh, a line uh, quoting Ajay Agrawal to Ajay Agrawal from a press release from Sirion, and <laughs> it tracks something that you just uh, said, but it it relates to to something that is uh, very much on all of our minds, also, which is COVID nineteen, and it, it's it's the following quote: Organizations still face massive challenges in extracting valuable insights from digital contract repositories during M&A due diligence, repapering exercises to adapt to new regulations such as GDPR, disruptions such as COVID-19, and for managing their own legal and operational obligations to customers or those of their vendors. You know, th this strikes me as an encapsulation of what you said. You continue on in this uh, to say, uh, Sirion AE, which you know we'll, we'll talk about, will significantly lower the barrier for companies who need a better way to manage agreements but can't afford the high costs and durations associated with risk analysis, diligence, and compliance. Certainly, uh, the, the State Street example there, I think, uh, attaches here, right? Uh, you know, companies who, who need a better way to manage all, all of those agreements. Um, 
as it relates to uh, new disruptions, curveballs, you know, like COVID nineteen, uh, but but certainly, you know, maybe maybe slower motion curveballs like GDPR. How does the technology that you're building, the systems that you're building, make life easier for companies? Great. Yeah. So so I mean, I think though, let's take a step back from this. How is value transacted uh, transactionally today? People exchange documents when what they really want to exchange is information, when what they really want to assess is risk. So therefore, let's say you want to buy a company. The target, you will send them a due diligence request list. They will submit a set of documents to you, but those documents don't mean anything to you. So you will then hire a law firm and an LMS provider maybe. Those people will send their lawyers into the due diligence room, you know, 20 years ago, that used to be a physical room. Today, it's a virtual data room. And the lawyers will read the documents inside. But what are they really doing? They're looking for information. They're looking to see if the regulatory filings were done. They're looking to see if the FCPA status is fine. They're looking for other signs of risk or compliance uh, of the target company to make sure everything is kosher, that, did you, that there are no bombs lurking there for a potential acquirer, right? They're looking in target contracts to see none of them have expired, uh, that no consent requirements are sitting there that need to be, that will get triggered as a result of this. So the point is, if you already know the information that you want from the document that's being exchanged, then why do you need to exchange documents at all? Why, why can't technology Come into, I mean, let me give you a simple example. Why do we even have virtual data rooms today? Why can't the people who are providing virtual data rooms just say, you know what, if this is the information you're looking for, upload your documents and we'll give you that information. Don't bother sending lawyers to read them. We'll just give you the information auto-extracted from these documents so that you can go and get about your transaction. Right? I'll give you one more example. We live in a very fast-changing world. And you know, just in the last two, three years alone, there have been events that have had global repercussions. One is Brexit. As a result of Brexit, many large financial institutions are today moving large loan portfolios out of Britain, okay, into the European Union, into places like the Republic of Ireland, into Frankfurt, and they desperately need to review their loan portfolios and re-warehouse them in jurisdictions of their choice, which means mass exercises of reviewing, of repapering, of amendments, and talking to counterparties and borrowers. Same thing with the change in the LIBOR standards. So LIBOR and IBOR variants are now being phased out in favor of the SOFR standards, as a result of which, again, armies of human beings uh, led by the big four, EY, KPMG, are trolling through these you know, indentures and loan agreements and other financial documents, excavating those that are dependent on IBOR variants and replacing them with so for incredibly manual and backbreaking work that costs tens of millions of dollars for a bank like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley to do in a relatively short uh, period of time. These are two examples of where of situations where instead of exchanging documents and involving lawyers and human beings to manually go through this in a painstaking fashion, 
technology should be able to come in, automatically uh, discover these loan agreements, discover which of them have LIBOR or Brexit clauses inside them, then be able to segregate the ones that do have them into a queue, batch them by reviewer, uh, and match the agreement type to the reviewer's capabilities. So if reviewer A, Anand, let's say, is an expert in a particular type of securitized loan, then those loan agreements should be forwarded to Anand and so on and so forth, and then be able to do the QC, the batching, uh, the deduplication, the ingestion, the post-processing, all of that, and the analytics on the same platform. I mean, we are talking about a seamless relationship, Anand, between the extraction technology, the post-processing, the visualization technology, such that the entire manual exercise that happens today over months and maybe years can be compressed into days and even weeks. This is the future taking shape right before our eyes. Yeah, it, it sure is. It's mind-boggling to me that so much of that work is is still done manually at such great cost, and and it just it just seems like a, a you know a, a greenfield opportunity here. That's amazing. I've got one last question for you as it relates to Surion and. It's really, I, I, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this, and 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 you mentioned it, so I, I can't I can't let it go. But it relates to blockchain, and let me let me channel some of my listeners here, right, in saying, you know, look, Ajay, we've been hearing about blockchain solutions to any number of problems for a long, long time. You know, I understand that Bitcoin exists, and I can, you know, it's a, it's a store of value, and I could transfer it as currency. But we've been talking about smart contracts for five plus years, and nothing has truly come to fruition, as best as I know. Please educate me if, if that's if that's incorrect. But uh, how does Sirion Labs intend to use smart contracts, and where do you think smart contracts can shine here in this new world of uh, contracting uh, based on the information in in these obligations or? or information memorializing these obligations, as opposed to just a giant stack of documents? Where do smart contracts fit in? Yeah. So I think a great, um, you know, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Let's firstly call a spade a spade, Anand. A lot of the early promise of blockchain and of a decentralized ledger have yet to bear fruit. What we have six years down the road is a variety of uh, conventions, um, accord, uh, common accord, etc. But we have very little adoption on the ground. So it's worth asking. You know, it's a little bit like that Andrew Bartels moment in two thousand and two, right? It's worth asking why did people believe so much in the potential of blockchain five, six years ago, and why has it been adopted so little sitting in two thousand and twenty? Before we proceed to answer that question. And the short answer to each of those is people believed in it because the utopia of a common platform where everybody expresses their needs and their desires in the same language, where um, every contract is digital to begin with, it's still an incredibly powerful and a very alluring uh, idea. That, I think, has not changed. I think the difficulties are that people express their needs even today in different, using different words, different languages, that uh, that exercise of homogenization, of harmonization, taxonomically speaking, that has not happened. I'll give you a simple example. One of the greatest accomplishments of Steve Jobs was to create the iTunes concept, right? And if you go back 
15, 20 years ago, when he was first floating that idea, every recording label had its own pricing system. They had their own way of monetizing royalty payments uh, and so on and so forth. And he basically rode roughshod over them and their variations and their preferences and their histories and said, guys, if you want to be part of iTunes, then this is how it's going to be. It's going to be a very simple price per song, per album. This is how it's going to be. And this is how there's not going to be any bespoke royalty payments. You're going to have to follow the rules of the walled garden of Apple. And initially, a few people stood out. They were holdouts and said, no, we don't think we want to be part of it. But over time, as they saw the incredible volumes flowing through that, that's what drove that adoption and made iTunes the monster that it is today, right? Now, coming forward, I think a similar wave has not happened in legal. Those variations in taxonomy and the way people express their contractual requirements, those variations still remain. But the deeper issue for me is that, and that's why the demand side and the buy side, uh, uh, the sell side systems remain uh, separated by issues of language and taxonomy. But the bigger issue for me is what happens after a contract gets signed. These issues about language and taxonomy touch on the front end of creating a contract of finding a common language. But I think what people have to do is to really reverse the question and say, okay, even if we found a common language and transacted together on a decentralized ledger or a blockchain as it's known common, uh, commonly, what would that get us? And that then becomes a very interesting question. And what it gets us is this. Today, after a contract is signed, 80% of the dialogue between the parties is about your data versus my data. Imagine a world where you could say to IBM, let's say your IT provider, hey, Mr. IBM, I know we've got a 900-page contract with you, but the system is telling me that I have 154 critical obligations that are due from you during the transition period. And oh, by the way, it's also telling me that I have to do 18 things to enable you to deliver your obligations to me. Can we get aligned on this 154 plus 18, these 172 distilled, crystallized outcomes? And can we put those 900 pages to one side? Because at that point, we would truly have aligned our expectations from this contract. At this point, the digital core of the contract, the business core, the value you know, crystallization will have come to the surface. And that's when we will be working together. And I think once there is alignment on that, that the true journey of value is after the signature, that's when the blockchain thing will really, really kick off. So I think that short answer to your question, blockchain, the people who started blockchain and contracting focused on the creation of contracts. What they should have asked is the exact opposite question. How do we realize the anticipated value from contracts? And that, to my mind, is a much more logical starting point to build the blockchain, is a common language for obligations, milestones, service levels, and invoices. And that's the journey, I think, that's starting now. If you look at the big contracting companies of the world, uh, Aptos, Conga, Isertis, Sirion, these are the questions we are wrestling with today. How do we people, how do people keep their promises? And I think the first thing about keeping promises is to make sure that both the parties have the same promises in front of them. You can't keep your promises if you're expecting A and I'm, I'm expecting B.
You you are a uh, philosopher, Ajay. I mean, this is this is uh, just put so elegantly and uh, distilled distilled down in such a a clear way. I am changing here. Yeah, I practiced law for quite a while, and I I'm I feel myself changing how I view contracts just based on listening to you respond. And that, that's that's immensely fascinating. I feel like a lot of our conversation has been futuristic, despite the fact that it's 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 stuff that you're working on right now and it's actual value that you're providing. I want to uh, ask you one last question, despite the fact that I could talk to you for another hour, just about what you just responded with uh, about uh, you know this kind of almost code based way to look at at, at obligations. But I want to I want to get to predictions here. You've, you approach this from a very interesting perspective. You're the founder of United Lecture, the founder of, of uh, Sirion Labs. You think of contracts differently than I think the vast majority of, of people, which is why you're on the cutting edge. What, what's going to happen in 20 years? I mean, if you're looking at this uh, ex- from your perch here, uh, you're looking at adoption of various things. You're looking at uh, you know, customer needs. You're looking at where the legal industry is going. How is life going to be different in law, in the legal industry, in in contracts, whether they're smart or not, in 20 years? Yeah, I think that the legal industry uh, will not be an exception uh, to the RPA and the automation trend that's playing out in all the other corporate functions uh, worldwide. And I think that the simplest way to put it is the rules. The sets of rules, the sets of classifications that today comprise legal judgment will increasingly be articulated and crystallized into software. And wherever possible, high volume repetitive tasks will be eliminated uh, or automated. And true uh, judgment-based activities will always survive and survive at a super premium. So, I mean, if you look... um, Back in 1978, the largest law firms in America had 50, maybe 60 lawyers. That's as recent as 1978, okay? And then by the time I was working in Wall Street in the mid-90s, you already had large law firms in Wall Street, like Scadden was 900 lawyers. People used to say, wow, what a big law firm Scadden is. And already firms like Baker McKenzie, and Jones Day had crossed the thousand lawyer mark. And in between, in the early part of the last decade, as a result of MA, et cetera, those law firms had even grown to 3,000, 4,000 lawyers worldwide. I don't know where that number is today, but I can tell you 20 years from now, uh, I don't see those kind of massive law firm constructs as being viable anymore. I think one of the ways that those law firms grew is by incorporating into the law firm a lot of activity that was done by paralegals and by lower level lawyers who were formerly inside law departments, corporate law departments. And by dragging that work uh, inside the law firm, uh, what they ended up doing is lowering the level of legal advice that they were offering to their clients. And I think a lot of that work will either get automated or will revert back to the corporate legal department. Uh, So one of the things that we will see 20 years from now is possibly a return to smaller, tighter law firms. The second thing I think is this whole notion of full service law firm having a great expertise in this, that, and everything. 
there will be a challenge to that. There will be a growth of best of breed specialist firms who focus on intellectual property, on litigation of uh, particular types. Uh, so those, the return of best of breed specialist entities, uh, I think, will also follow. But I think far more interesting than all of this will be the in emergence of intermediate entity types. I think the experiments of Axiom, the evolution of Axiom uh, has been a fascinating story, right? What Mark uh, did in founding Axiom, the recent split into three separate entities, two of which are tech-powered, uh, and then, of course, the Rump Axiom. That is a fascinating microcosm of the types of alternative legal service provider entities that will continue to reshape uh, the market based on, uh, so there's automation, there's the evolution of these uh, intermediate types of legal uh, providers and the resultant reshaping of both the law firm and the corporate legal uh, department. And I think as this automation plays out, legal leaders will come under increasing pressure to step out of their islands and be more closely connected with business. Whether it's in the dynamic monitoring of risk, whether it is in connecting with the rest of the uh, you know, ERP or the business transaction backbone, I think that pressure will become more intense. And I can date this very precisely, right? I saw this early in my career, the scandals that started happening in 1998 with Anderson, you know, with um, uh, Enron and WorldCom, uh, et cetera. That is when the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, regulations followed. That is when the regulatory response followed uh, to, to these situations. And that is when uh, I think the whole elevation of GC to become a direct report to the CEO uh, ensued as a result. And I think there was a overreaction. And just like an overreaction, it's taken about 15 years or so for people to realize that the pendulum swung too far, that legal budgets grew too, too crazily, and legal RBs multiplied too readily. And I think now the pendulum will start swinging the other way. We'll see a shrinkage back to a more kind of dynamic state, to a more natural state. And as that happens, the legal function uh, as I said, will be drawn closer to their business functions of customer service delivery, of procurement, uh, you know, bridging the gap between the promised value and the realized value. Again, just incredibly, incredibly well articulated, well put. I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I'm fascinated uh, you know, with, with the arc that you laid out from the 1970s to, you know, massive, massive for full service kind of Walmart-esque firms now, right? You have everything you need in there. And uh, it, it's fascinating to me that you think it will kind of rebound to, to where we were. Uh, Ajay, as I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, I could, you know, I've got many, many more questions I'd love to ask you, but, but uh, you're a busy man, Ajay, and uh, so I want to certainly respect that. Ajay, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on, hearing from uh, someone as experienced and you know, hearing from someone with a, a wide-ranging perspective uh, such as yours has been a real joy. So I want to thank you. It's very kind of you to invite me, Anand. Uh, and, and, and a real pleasure to share uh, some perspectives with you. And I want to repeat what I said at the beginning of the call. We are not the visionaries. Those of us who build products or companies like United Lex, we are not the visionaries. We are fortunate to be close to visionaries like Bill Deckelman, like Mike Laurie. And all we really are 
are vessels to realize those their vision. That's a brilliant, brilliant way to wrap up, Ajay. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anand. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.